Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Um, let me just, um, well, so we, we haven't been doing what I normally rely on to fill in gaps in my talks is just the scripture being read. And so what I've been doing is just reading excerpts. And um, I want to encourage you to have your Bible open to Revelation 4 and 5. Those are the two chapters we're doing. Um, and by the way, these Bibles uh, in the chairs are for you to use now. But if you do not have one, please take one home. And uh, it's yours. So we have plenty of these, and they're actually pretty cheap. So um, don't worry about taking one. Um, so we will have some of the passage on the slides as well, so you can follow along. But would love for you guys to be able to immerse yourselves in the text and see that these are words from God, uh, not from Nathan, not from, uh, from RUF or anything like that, but these are God's words to us right now in this place where we're at. Um, and that's really cool. That's really cool what happens here. The Holy Spirit uses his word uh, as I'm speaking, as you're listening uh, to soften hearts uh, to captivate our attention, to cause us uh, to repent and turn to Jesus. So something special happens when we open up God's word. So Revelation 4 and 5 tonight. Continuing our series, there is hope, the victory of Jesus in the book of Revelation. We are entering the stratosphere into heaven, the heavenly throne room tonight. So this is a pretty exciting set of chapters um, but first, I want to talk about how we're all economists in some way. We're going to be talking about worship. And I learned this this week, and I should have known this from my Greek classes a long time ago. But worship in Greek is axios, which relates to the economic um, balance of a scale. So you remember, like in the old days, they would have these scales and they had this beam and there'd be these two places where you put one on one side weights and then the other side the object that you're trying to weigh. And when the beam is level, that's when it's, um, it's level, <laughs> right? Uh, but axios mean it's, it's, uh, you're determining its worth, that you're setting the equilibrium. We're going to be talking about worship, which has a lot to do with worth, determining how much something is worth. When we worship anything, we're ascribing worth to it. So I want to talk about how we actually do this all the time. Um, anytime you show up to Warren Dining Hall and you choose to go to this place and not the other, to choose this type of salad topping and not the other, you are weighing um, the balance, as it were. Uh, you're here at BU because you've weighed the balance and you've said it's worth it for me to incur all this cost, debt, energy, time, resources for the payoff in the end right? That relationship that you're in, that friendship that you're in, it's worth it to you uh, because you've counted the costs. You've done that little economic calculation in your brain. This is true for small choices and the bigger choices. What major you're going to uh, choose, what minor you're going to choose. The bottom line is that we're all making these sort of evaluative decisions, assigning worth to some things and not to others automatically, unconsciously, and consciously and deliberately. 
Um, and there may come a time when you face an opportunity so great that you put what might you, you might say your heart and soul into it. Where something is so worth it that you're pouring your whole self into it. Uh, maybe it's a career. Maybe you found that special someone to spend the rest of your life with. There's a lot of hope with these kinds of decisions. You've said you're worth it. This is worth it. This is worth me putting my heart and soul into. And the problem is that no matter how virtuous that career, that special someone, there's the inevitable realization that there is a mismatch, that the equilibrium gets off, that the beam is not level, that there's a mismatch and imbalance between your desire and your appetite for what you thought the thing would bring and what it actually brings you. So this is why a lot of people have midlife crises that end in a major career change. This is why uh, some er marriages end in divorce. The desire no longer matches the actual reward. In other words, you've said, I'm not sure if this is worth it anymore. The uh, country singer, I listen to old country, y'all, sings this. She says, Emily Harris, by the way. We drink our fill and still we thirst for more. Asking if there's no heaven, what is this hunger for? We drink our fill of things. We, we get what we want. And then we realize we're still thirsty. We're still hungry. We, our appetite is for something more than that. Something that nothing on earth can satisfy. And there's a word for this. It's called worship. Um, Tim Keller defines worship as an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. You ascribe such value to it that it engages your entire being. I want to read for you some excerpts of an address, uh, commencement address, uh, Kenyon College in Ohio, uh, several years back. We have some Ohioans here. Um, David Foster Wallace is a well-known uh, author and uh, really great Um, books, short stories. He wrote for like the New Yorker and stuff, so you can still find his stuff online. But he did this commencement address, and as far as I know, he was not a a Christian, not a believer, but he said some really insightful things about worship. He says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, the reason we seek spiritual forms of worship is because, um, and I'm quoting it now, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious, they are default settings. What David Foster Wallace is saying is that worship is the default setting of the human heart. We can't not worship. 
It's what we're made for. We are designed to be those that ascribe ultimate worth to something outside of ourselves, something greater than ourselves. The problem is like Bono and U2 sings, we haven't found what we're looking for. We still haven't found what we're looking for. And we're dying for something worthy of worship. Something that really has that value that matches our appetite, that matches our desire. That's a long prelude to this chapter, this two, these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, that is basically a scene of worship, a scene of heavenly, heavenly worship in the throne room of God. I'm going to read uh, the first several verses of chapter 4, if you'll read along with me. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with, like the, uh, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That's a lot. I want to boil it down and draw your attention to two things. Who is worshipped and how he is worshipped. Who is worshipped? It says, one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper Carnelian, this rainbow that was the appearance of an emerald. It wasn't exactly like a normal rainbow, but it had the appearance of a precious stone. This is God seated on the throne. He has uh, the appearance um, described in terms of these, these colorful stones. Some of them are translucent, this light emanating from him. We've already seen this in another vision earlier in Revelation. These four creatures are strange and mysterious. We don't have time to get into all of this, I'm sorry. But they resemble creatures from other prophetic visions in Scripture. These 24 elders were called the priests of the Old Testament. But the important thing is that these creatures are not the centerpiece. These 24 elders are not the centerpiece. The one seated on the throne 
is what has captured their attention, is what is causing them to sing and say, holy, 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 worthy are you, O Lord. They are worshiping. Later it says that they fell down and worshiped. Again, just like John, when he first saw Jesus in the vision, he fell flat as the dead. Uh, A lot of people falling down in worship. Worthy is what they say, axios. All things were created by this one in heaven. All things in heaven, the, the realm that we cannot see, God created that. All things on this earth, God created this. The creatures and the elders included. The only thing not created is the creator himself. So what's being uh, called to our attention is that this one seated on the throne is not only the judge, not only the God, one above all, but he's the creator of all things. And he was not created. He is not worshiping anything or anyone. He is the object of worship. Of worship. This is the triune God. I want to back up because I've said a lot of stuff that aren't concepts that we we maybe should take for granted these days. Um, God is maybe not a concept we should take for granted. Um, I, I want to take a step back and think about this. Um, when you think of a future reality, when you think of maybe even the afterlife, maybe you even go there, maybe your, your concept of life and this universe is like there's something beyond this earth, right? And you think about the greatest possible world that you could exist in one day in the future, or all of us could exist in. This stretches our imaginations, but it it is at the top, right? It's at the outer edge of our imaginations. If we were to imagine a utopia, a peaceful world, if we were to imagine heaven, if you want to call it that. All throughout time, the greatest works of art, literature, music, movies, they've been trying to depict this thing beyond our imagination. They've been trying even to depict the one who is above all, which is what we see here in this throne room, this one who is seated on the throne. There's a a Benedictine monk uh, in the 11th century. His name was Anselm, which is a great name, by the way. Somebody named their kid Anselm for crying out loud. Um, And he came up with this proof or an argument Uh, for the existence of God. And he posited that if we can conceive of a being greater than all beings, then he does some logical gymnastics and he says, then that being must exist, therefore God exists. Now, I'm not here to get into this logical argument for why you must believe in the existence of God But I do want you to think about that being above all beings. That one above all. This is God. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who is the creator of you and me and everything that we see. There are no other gods equal to them. He is not an equal among other gods. There is nothing that he has created that is up to his stature. He is the one above all. There's no even impersonal or abstract force 
that is outside of his power or control or that is above him. There is no logical possibility beyond him. He is the highest form of knowledge, love, goodness, truth. He is in essence, love, goodness, truth, power. He is, this is the definition of God. When we speak of God, that is who we are speaking of, is the one above all. And if this being exists, and if this God is in heaven, and if he is the greatest, there is nothing greater than being in his presence. In other words, being in his room, being in his throne room, must be the best place ever to possibly be, right? And if it's not in our minds, then we need to reconceive of who God is and what heaven is like. Because this is the greatest the thing that is above all things. To be in the presence of God, in other words, would be the greatest experience beyond our wildest imaginations. What I want this to do is to blow your conceptions out of the water of what heaven is, especially. Um, There are so many cheap stereotypes of Christian heaven. There are so many sentimental depictions. Uh, These are the creations of Hollywood. These are the creations of the Hallmark Channel. This is not the throne room of Revelation. Let's let God speak for himself. He's given us this vision of what it's like to be in his presence. This vision continues in chapter 5. Starting in verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. This is John speaking because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This scroll that God holds in his right hand is his divine will. It contains his decrees of judgment, of redemption, all the secrets of his divine plan. John weeps loudly because there is no one found worthy to open the scroll and to execute his plan. I want you to uh, imagine that you're, uh, you're in an airplane, seated on the airplane, on a tarmac, And over the intercom, you hear the pilot say, sorry guys, the air traffic controllers have gone on strike. There's no one to tell us where to go. I'm gonna go ahead and take off. (laughs) I think there'd be panic on the plane. Uh, You'd be looking for the exit and trying to get off that plane, right? Or maybe something more close to home. Imagine you're in New York City and the grid, the electrical grid goes down, the backup generators go down and all the traffic lights are black, like there's no lights. And you're probably not gonna call the Uber at that point, right? Because it's chaos in New York City, no matter what, let alone no traffic lights. So you're probably gonna take the sidewalk. If the universe, uh, if the generator's gone off in the universe, there's no one in control. Um, If God is on strike, If everything that's happening is the product of 
chaos of chance. If that's all that reigns, we should weep. We should weep. If that is your belief system, um, I don't know how you're not weeping. If chaos and chance is what rules the universe, then that's scary. That's really scary. If, if the deists are right, that God created and that's great, but he has nothing to do with the world today, that he's not involved in this world, that he's not redeeming this world. If the deists are right, that he's just this divine watchmaker and he sets back and lets everything go, then we have reason to weep and like John to weep loudly because there is no one to enact the decree, the secret scroll, the plan of redemption of God. We are lost. We are created and we're lost. That is reason to weep loudly. The throne room of God is the control room of the universe. If you like Hamilton, it's the room where it happens. It is the room. There is no other place where there are higher decisions being made by higher authorities. This is the room where it happens. God created He made a plan, and he has it in his hand. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And there's silence. There's silence enough for John to gulp and to weep and to wail. Because he realizes if there's no one to open that scroll, then we're doomed. Who is worthy? The legend of King Arthur, uh, his, his rise to the throne, it's remembered. This, this of course, is a legend. Uh, remember, it's the Excalibur sword stuck in the stone. I think it was by Merlin the Magician. Right? And the only one who is worthy of the crown, worthy of the throne of England, could take the handle of Excalibur and pull it out of the stone. There's only one who is worthy. Arthur, King Arthur in England, as legend has it, was up to the task. He matched. He was equal to the task. Who is equal to God? Who is worthy to enact the decree of God? Only the Son of God. Only the second person of the Trinity, who is, in, as the creeds say, the same substance with the Father. The silence breaks. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of tr- the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We sang in uh, our song earlier about the lion of Judah. Genesis 39 the blessing of Jacob to his sons. He says to Judah, you're a lion cub and the scepter will never leave your tribe. God's plan being enacted even then. To David, the greatest king of all Israel, he said, I promise you there will be from your lineage an everlasting king. God's plan being enacted through David. The lineage of David comes Jesus, the eternal king who will reign 
forever. So what you'd expect, if you hear the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, you would expect the, the trumpets to blast, the inauguration ceremony to begin. If you're to go to the next verse, you might be surprised to see in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, yes, but as though it had been slain. A lamb slain. So here, guys, we're at the heart of heaven. We're also the heart of the gospel. This is where it's at. David Foster Wallace said that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The idols of our hearts, the things that we make ultimate, demand our resources and sacrifice. They ask us to give, give, give. They kill us. Jesus gave his life for us. He sacrificed himself for you. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is talking about Jesus of Nazareth, crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago to enact the ancient plan of God's secret scroll. It's no longer a secret. It's no longer a mystery. We see it on the cross. And Jesus, in his blood that was shed to cover our sin. The word holy, I, I can't not bring this up. Um, the word holy, we often associate with being righteous or being good, right? Holier than thou usually means, oh, you think you're so good. Um, but holy actually has a richer, fuller connotation to being above all, to being other in the sense that holy, holy, holy are you Lord God Almighty. We're saying how great and above even our own vision and conception of you, you are. And if that is who God is, how can we come into his throne room? How can we who are unholy, who are unworthy, Come into his presence. It's only because Jesus shed his blood to cover our sin, to clothe us in white robes of righteousness so that we can be called worthy. Not halfway, but all the way. Just as much as Jesus is worthy to be in the presence of God, now we can be worthy to be in the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? We have access to our Father, the one who is holy, 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 who is above all. It's only because of Jesus. Jesus sets us free to worship. We've finally found what we've been looking for. The thing that sets the balance right, our appetite and Christ, the match for our hearts. It goes on, it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And then this voice got really louder. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. How can I say more? These, these um, voices of worship grow. They expand exponentially to reach every tribe and tongue and nation, the entire world. These voices are joined in worship. That's it. That's where it's at. Um, God is the one we've been waiting for. He is the true match for our souls. Everything else, everyone else will feel like a mismatch because it is. Because it is. Because we were made to love God and to worship him. Um, my, my son asked me the other day, Dad, if we ask Jesus to rescue us, will he come rescue us? And guys, I hate to say it, like, like of course, like I'm a dad, I want to reassure my son immediately, like without a second thought. But I balked. I confess I balked. So I was like all, all up in the like already and not yet, like, well, you know, technically, like, <laughs> you know, it may not be now, it may be in ways we can't see, you know. But I, I, I checked myself and I said, yes. And you know, if the answer is anything other than yes, if we ask Jesus to come rescue us, will he come rescue us? If we can't say yes wholeheartedly, yes, Jesus will rescue us because he has, because he is and he will, then I don't know if it's worth worshiping that. The good news is that he has. The answer is an emphatic yes, and that is worth believing in. Let's pray. Lord, words fail. We, we just ask that you be with us and give us hearts of worship. Pray in Jesus' name.